Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. We left off last week with a meditation on chapter 3, verse 12, verses 11 and 12, which are quoted in Hebrews chapter 12 in regard to the discipline that our Heavenly Father leads us through. So once more here from Proverbs, at verse 11, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, and a father, the son in whom he delights. And I pointed out this interesting detail that when the author of Hebrews goes to translate these words, he specifically uses the language of chastisement, which is the term used in John's Gospel for what Christ endures in his scourging and passion. In other words, in this from our vantage point, subtle way, I suppose if you're a native speaker, maybe not so subtle, the author of Hebrews is drawing us into a Christological reality so that as we reflect on any unjust suffering that we might endure, any afflictions that come upon us from the hand of God, that we would immediately be drawn into the frame of the cross and the wisdom of the cross. Then we can understand this not as God hating us or God despising us, but rather as God loving and cherishing us, even as he loves and cherishes his own beloved son. Now, a key difference, of course, between Christ and ourselves is Christ is not a sinner, has no sinful nature. We are sinners and have a sinful nature. And so there is a change of shape in the discipline we endure. St. Peter will talk about this, and he'll make a distinction between suffering for those things uh, that are sinful, (laughs) that is the just punishment upon our sins. We ought not really look, I mean, this is a kind of discipline and chastisement, but this is nothing that, that is unique to Christianity. Everyone in the world, if they do wrong, faces consequences to that wrong. What's more particularly in view is where there is no specific rhyme or reason. The affliction of God simply falls upon you. And again, Job is the the biblical masterpiece on this concept and theme because Job is innocent and righteous. Now, do we mean that in an absolute sense? No. But what Job clings to, despite the statements of his friends to the contrary, is that he has not done anything that deserves this specific amount of affliction that has befallen him. So Job's friends are constantly saying to him, come on, God is just, he wouldn't do this unless he unless there was just cause or just reason, so you must have some secret sin. Fess up, Job. And Job refuses. And you can see here a a very important distinction, a very important category of thought. 
And that is this thought of relative righteousness. I think if Job were a modern-day Lutheran, he might say something like, well, I deserve all this and worse. And then Job's friends would say, yep, we told you. And it would be a very different theology. Because the friends of Job who say, oh, you deserve all this and more, in the end are rebuked by God. And Job is upheld by God. So the problem of suffering, when we think of it just in terms of sin in a vertical relationship, then we can all say, well, I'm a sinner, I deserve hell, so whatever temporal punishments come on me on account of my sin, those are righteous and just, and I have no reason and room to complain. The problem is, as soon as you look at your neighbor, who is completely engaged in impenitent wickedness and does nothing but prosper... And it's like God can't keep from pouring blessings upon blessings upon this person. That's the rub. And that is a valid biblical category. If we miss that category and way of thinking, we're going to be confused and misinterpret and misread Job as well as any number of psalms that meditate on this theme. So then, when we are afflicted, And we can't figure out a rhyme or reason for that affliction. The guidance of Hebrews, the guidance of Proverbs, is to receive this from the hand of God as from a loving father. To humble oneself and receive it in such a way that one might profit from it. That's the task. So, what does this do then? This, well, let me start here. In receiving the affliction from our Father's hand and trusting ourselves to Him that this is good for us, and this is faith wrestling with God, but trusting that this is good for us, then we can see this also then as His love, as a earthly father loves his children and so spareth not the rod, so our heavenly father loves us and spareth not the rod. Now, what that does, though, is while we can say that this too is God's love that he is afflicting me, it precludes any sense of like merit or comparison or competition where you would look and say, okay, well, he must have loved Job most of all because he let Job suffer most of all. We're not going to just build a different ladder of comparison where we say, okay, you know, the level one is just, oh, this person is blessed, God must love them. That's obviously theologically erroneous. But then the other, the flip side of that would just be, oh, this person's suffering more than anyone else, God must love them. No, that too is erroneous. Both of these are too simplistic. Okay, and I think the way that we can cut through a lot of that is to simply receive the discipline from our Father's hand, knowing that that is an expression of his love for us. Stopping short of comparing ourselves, well, this person suffers more, this person suffers less. If we do engage in that kind of comparison, the biblical answer is ultimately this, just wait. What appears to be unjust right now may in fact be unjust right now. But that's not all that is to come. That's not the entire data set. The day is coming when the Lord will, in fact, balance those scales. The Lord is just. 
in that sense. And so this becomes an exercise of faith and an exercise of the Psalms, of our prayer life. Why do the wicked prosper? Everywhere the Bible is, just wait and you'll see that they don't. Whether in this life, that's the emphasis of the large catechism, for example, that they don't even prosper in this life. They just have the appearance of prospering. All their food that looks so nice tastes like ash. And all their clothing that looks so great is just weighing them down with emptiness. Because these are all false gods that they are serving, and false gods leave one empty, ultimately. And so the large catechism would look to the fact that even temporally looks can be deceiving, and there is no true blessing therein. But the scriptures, of course, point us also to the judgment and to that great reversal motif where the wealthy become impoverished and the proud are humbled. Meanwhile, the poor and poor in spirit are exalted and those of lowly estate are lifted up. Okay, So that's the biblical answer there. And Again, these become ways in which the Father speaks to us and we to the Father as we receive this loving discipline. Um, But we're not going to make any kind of competition out of it. Uh, In terms of receiving the affliction, you know, I suppose it would benefit us to just say a few things about that too. Let's let's say you were to, you know, fall and break your arm. You don't say, well, this has come upon me from God, so I'm not going to go to the doctor and get a cast on it. That would also be a wrong way of looking at it. Just because we say that an affliction comes from God doesn't mean that we can cease. I mean, doesn't mean that we have to just acquiesce. We can cease to mitigate that affliction. We can say, "Okay, my arm's broken. I'm going to go take care of it as best I can." And then, and then, how am I going to do that after I've been a good steward of my body? I might reflect and meditate on that in a deeper sense of my own frailty, of my own arrogance, of the fact that I think I'm never going to die, and here my body has already shown me my mortality. And these would be profitable ways to meditate on that theme, for example. Okay, but just to be clear, we're not pursuing suffering. We're not unnecessarily dwelling in suffering. We're looking at life vocationally. We're looking at things that God obviously puts upon us, and we're seeking how to understand these coming from a loving Father. I think while all of this can be complex, it can also be summed up in a few very simple ways of thinking or ways of stating it. And one of those was, in fact, in our hymnody last week uh, from Paul Gerhard, a Lutheran of that, uh, I think he was in the first generation, he may have been in the second generation of Lutherans, but a man who wrote many of the hymns that show up in our Lutheran service book, and a man who was no stranger to loss and suffering and the affliction of God, he uh, lost his wife and buried five of his six children, uh, to say nothing of anything else that he endured. I love this line from his hymn, Why Should Cross and Trial Grieve Me? Hymn number 756 in the Lutheran service book. Here's the the line. God gives me my days of gladness, and I will still trust him still when he sends me sadness. God is good. His love attends me. Day by day, come what may, guides me and defends me. 
So I think what's so beautiful about that line is, in the first place, our attitude toward God is, thy will be done. So it's not as though we're praying, well, make me suffer more. <laughs> we're simply praying, thy, thy good and fatherly will be done in my life, even if that's contrary to my own will, contrary to my own sense of what's good and right. I'm going to entrust myself to your higher wisdom and your higher understanding. It also frees us, I think, to look at life in a, in a beautifully simplistic way, that blessings are blessings, and afflictions are blessings. So that whatever we receive from God, we don't need to look at it and be suspicious. Again, where this theology of, of suffering goes wrong, it's if God afflicts us and that's how he shows us his love, then maybe when he's blessing us, he's actually cursing us. And so you get a blessing and you might even think, well, he's just blessing me so that he can take it away later. It's this kind of suspicion of God or suspicion of blessings. That too is an error. What we want to say, again, with Gerhardt, with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed, Blessed be his name when he gives. Blessings are blessings. Blessed be his name when he takes away. Afflictions are blessings, even if we can't comprehend how. Okay, and then we can think, too, of ways in which um, our circumstances might require wisdom of other Christians or even seeking the wisdom of the pastoral office. For example, if we're in a vocation say, the vocation of child to our parents. But our parents are acting in a particularly abusive and egregious way. What is our duty? What would God have us do according to vocation? But in what ways also ought we to extricate ourselves from that situation, set up boundaries so that we're not continually abused, etc. Okay, and so what I'm what I'm trying to say here too doesn't mean, oh, okay. So no matter what the circumstances, if this affliction if affliction comes from God, then this affliction comes from God. Then the only faithful thing to do is sit there and, and endure the abuse. No, that too would be an error. Okay, and sometimes that is more gray than black and white. You can think of that in the marital vocation. You can think of that in the parent-child vocation. Sometimes you can even think of that in the work vocation. How much do I have to put up with here? Uh, But when it comes to those callings of God and those vocations, it can sometimes be good to seek out the wisdom of other Christians, the wisdom of the pastoral office, uh, to help guide you in those more complicated circumstances. Okay, So I simply wanted to state a few of those things because while the biblical theology of suffering is rich, has been largely absent for many years in the church, there are also errors to be aware of and errors to avoid as you're embracing this theology. Make sense? Okay, so I have two further things to state. Um, I think they're both questions. First, would someone be willing to turn on the air a little bit? I'm starting to sweat out of pores I didn't know I had. Thank you. And then the other would be, are there, are there any questions or any clarifications that I can make or that maybe you would like to make? I see a couple of hands in the back. Are, are we running a microphone today? If not, I can, um, might be that our microphone man is uh, 
at a commission. Okay, I'll do my best to restate it for the benefit of those online. Um, please. Yeah, thank you. I, I mean, there's, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do here. I'm not going to be able to do justice to the answer because it, this is ultimately kind of a mystery. The, the way in which a Christian conducts himself in the world is, is a bit of a mystery. That is to say, um, in many cases, there is not a white and black what's right and what's wrong. And there are some tells in regard to that. Um, while Jesus says, turn the other cheek, he also, in the garden, in John's gospel, when the soldiers come to arrest him, and, they, and he, he says to them, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, ego I me, I am that I am. And with the force of that divine name, he knocks them all flat on their backs and backsides. Is Jesus meek? Yes. <laughs> we have to think more dynamically about what our understanding of meekness is. Okay? Is Jesus lowly of heart? Well, Jesus, of course, famously fashions a whip of cords and drives the money changers out of the temple. Is he, in that moment, lowly of heart? Yes, but that just reveals that we can't satisfy ourselves with a caricature of what it means to be lowly of heart. The same thing is true, and has been much noted by commentators, in regard to the turning of the other cheek. And that is that culturally, that act carries within it a certain amount of defiance and or self-respect. Okay? That you receive the insult and remain immovable and say insult again if you need to. It's very much akin to when Jesus is struck in the mouth by the soldier of the high priest and he doesn't just hang his head, but in that moment, he says, rather, if I have said what is false, demonstrate that. Is that also turning the other cheek? Yes. So there is a sense in which Christian, qua Christian, Christian as Christian per se, isn't immediately going to turn around and strike cheek for cheek. But that's not to say that the Christian just folds and, and just immediately crumples into a ball of mush. That is something we never see our Lord do. And then in, the, in what follows, look at the book of Acts, for example, that's nothing we see the apostles do. When the apostles are jailed, when the apostles are beaten, when the apostles receive public scourging and humiliation, 
they don't in meekness go away. They don't return in kind, but rather they rejoice that they have been accounted worthy to suffer these things. That also factors into our way of looking at the theology of suffering. They rejoice that they have been counted worthy to suffer in these ways, and they do what? Carry on all the more boldly. Okay, so there is, in the phrase, turn the other cheek, I would say, um, if we understand that overly simplistically, we're believing a caricature and not taking in the full data of what that actually means, how Christians can respond in a way that is different than eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and yet not in a way that is merely passive or uh, merely acquiesces and curls itself into a ball of self-misery. Does that kind of help paint a, a picture there? The other aspect of the question you were talking about, like parent to child, or I think relationship-wise, mm-hmm. um, that's um, that's the interesting part too. Is that it is more of you know complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's good to be said to ask other people for wisdom and figure that out. Yeah, it's very complicated. I mean, in the nitty-gritty details of the particular arrangement, it's very complicated. You know, what do you do when dad's yelling at you and you're about 25% wrong and about 75% right? And he's kind of misunderstanding you, so he's about 50% right and 50% wrong. And what are you supposed to do? (laughs) And how are you supposed to think about that? And how are you supposed to navigate that after the fact? I mean, these are all very detailed, complex circumstances that probably everyone in one way, shape, or form finds themselves within. And a lot of that is, again, um, looking at things vocationally and trying to fetch out, you know, how can you best serve your neighbor? How can you best honor your parents? And sometimes that's done um, by enduring, and sometimes that's done by setting up boundaries and borders. Um, It just depends on the circumstances. So, yeah, it's in the details. It's messy and muddled. I think as one receives these things, though, and then brings them to God, it becomes in some ways more simple and more clear. These are the ways in which I am wrong and in which I failed in my vocation. Please forgive me. Please grant me insight as to how to handle this situation and this relationship and vocation moving forward um, and those kinds of things. I think in our prayer life after the fact, it becomes a little more simple and clear. Okay, was there another hand or comment? Yep, all the way in the back there. Um, one more. Thank you. Uh, Pastor, um, I'm not sure you should have turned the air conditioning on because I think God sent the heat for you. Um, but uh, uh, no, uh, seriously though, I, I think your discussion here underscores one of the most serious objections to the philosophical doctrine of utilitarianism, the idea that the right thing to do is whatever maximizes happiness. And that is nobody knows what maximizes happiness, right? right. There's one person who knows. Sure. sure. And it seems to me that what we – you said sometimes we'll, we're told we have to wait and see that God sets things right. It could even be that sometimes we – that what we really need to wait for is the faith to just trust God. 
right? That maybe in heaven we won't see every way that God mm-hmm. works things out for good. Right. Maybe what what will happen is in heaven we'll finally just stop trying to do His job, mm-hmm. stop time to trying to be God ourselves, and just let Him be God and let Him run the universe because He's really good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That that in many ways. Now I think it, I think it's wrong, strictly speaking, to look at the Book of Job and say this is a text that is written for nothing other than the problem of suffering. I think that that would go too far, okay? And if you retain that frame of what is the answer to suffering then, you would get a remarkable answer if you, that, that's in keeping with what you're saying, if you ask the text that question that the text probably isn't primarily interested in answering. <laughs> but the answer you get at the end is that God does not give the answer to Job. God does not say, here's how it all makes sense, and here's what I'm trying to do, and here's you know, the ways in which this is going to affect my relationship with Satan, and you know, here's the way it's going to affect uh, millions of Christians down the road. As they re- None of that. No answers whatsoever that are satisfying given to Job, but rather a much more profound reality that in the end, God simply gives himself to Job as God. That's precisely, I think, your point. That we, because it kind of goes like this. If you look at God as the answer God, give me an answer, give me an answer, give me an answer. You don't ever seek to look for answers. You're just, all you're doing is constantly pursuing something that isn't yours to have. So at a certain point, the questions themselves need to cease even as you receive God as he is, right? Yeah, so I agree with you in terms of the utilitarian. Of course, the problem there, um, specifically from a Christian vantage point, is define happiness. That's the other issue. Because God very frequently would have us be holy rather than happy. And we can make an important distinction, even if a little bit artificial, between happiness and joyfulness. Because Christian joy can exist and, in fact, is deeper than the most profound of sorrows, whereas happiness cannot. So you find yourself in a Job situation, and you've lost your children, and your living, and everything you have, and your wife has turned her back on you and God. And I can guarantee you that Job isn't very happy in those circumstances, but he can still retain a certain kind of deeper joyfulness as he pursues the Lord in regard to what's happened to him. I think of, you know, you can think of Christ on the cross too. I, I think it would be wrong to say that he's happy, but he's joyful. There's a deeper joy. If you ask Christ, would you, would you be doing anything other than this? He would say, no. Not in this moment. This is precisely my joy to redeem humanity, even if the the circumstances are particularly unhappy. So there, too, happiness isn't so much the goal. And all of this mystery kind of just ties into what is very simplistically given to us, thy will be done. In the catechism, we're taught very plainly that that petition means that God's will would be done over and against the devil, the world, and our own sinful nature. So thy will be done is always prayed at least in part against ourselves. 
And then it would also be prayed, at least in part, against our own desires for and notions of happiness. If God gave you everything this afternoon that he possibly could that would make you happy, he would not have furthered you along as his child. We can reflect on this just concretely in this paradox that you've no doubt observed about, uh, about yourself. When things are going very, very well in your life, that's usually the time where your attendance at church and your daily prayers are at their least. Whereas it's precisely when you're struck acutely by the law in your conscience or by some suffering or tragedy that you are then brought back to that internal passion and desire, I want to be in church, I want to pray, I want to read the Psalms. So again, just even that little example can kind of enlighten for us the dynamics at play and why God isn't interested in just giving us our heart's desire and everything that would make us happy. It would ultimately be to our spiritual detriment. Okay, was there another... uh, yeah, please. Yeah, the uh, subject of suffering is very interesting. In uh, uh, looking at Proverbs 12, it says, Lord reproves him who he loves. And then the next one, blessed is he who finds wisdom. So t- to me, that implies that uh, suffering could be a learning experience. Mm-hmm. It goes back uh, to the, uh, the Greeks when they tell us that... Uh, uh, man has to learn through suffering, and then we learn from the Germans that what doesn't kill me will make me stronger. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe so. Maybe so. Your mileage may vary. Uh, but it is, it is true. It is true that there is wisdom to be discovered in affliction and in suffering. No doubt about that. So, again, just going back to verse 11, and we'll kind of end our discussion of suffering here. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. So blessings are blessings from God. Afflictions are blessings from God. Receive them as such. Still be a good steward of yourself and of your neighbors. There's no need to pursue suffering or no need to become puffed up about suffering or any other such thing that would be a product of the sinful nature rather than the new man. And this is connected with wisdom in the sense that suffering allows us to gain wisdom, to use wisdom within suffering, that's true. And I think that that's uh, maybe the connection, if, if any, don't want to make it overly explicit here, I'm not sure it is, but the connection then with verse 13, um, blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Of course, it might be apropos to recall the quote of Luther here and I'm pretty sure he's drawing on a deeper tradition, so this isn't a unique or distinctively Lutheran tradition per se, maybe the way Luther articulates it, but that is that there are three things that make a theologian, and that doesn't mean somebody who goes to seminary or a professor of theology or a pastor, 
Um, this means all of us as Christians. There are three things that uh, cause us to grow in our capacity as students and disciples of God. And those things are, first and foremost, meditatio on his word. So meditatio is the first, but it's not meditation in the sense of, you know, sitting in a dark room with your legs crossed, uh, thinking about nothing. Um, Meditation in the sense of dwelling on his word, repeating his word. The analogy is frequently used of chewing on and digesting his word. Okay, that's meditatio. Oratio is prayer, responding to that word, and that that also that shapes and forms within the Christian the habitus of theologian. Okay, that's the characteristic or the character, the aptitude for theology. And then, last but not least, is uh, tentatio. So you have meditatio, oratio, and tentatio, and the tentatio is is would be directly translated as temptation. But in German, it would be anfechtung, or in English, probably closer to affliction. And that's, well, you can actively pursue meditatio, and you can actively pursue oratio, studying God's word and prayer. The tentatio is going to be put upon you by God and or Satan. (laughs) And Satan only as the tool of God. That's where Luther says so beautifully, that Satan is still God's Satan, just to say that Satan can't do anything apart from the good and gracious will and purposes of God. So no matter what Satan does to subvert God, God is so much higher that he can change that and transform that into the very thing that serves God's good purposes. All right, so the devil attacks you in your conscience, and he wants to damn you. What is God going to do with that? In the first place, he's going to use that temptation to drive you to the cross of his son. And then he's going to drive you into a deeper understanding of sin and redemption, a deeper understanding of the dynamics you find yourself within, a deeper understanding of God's word and of prayer, a deeper ability to help and heal your neighbor. And all of this was caused, at least in some sense, by Satan. (laughs) And that's the delightfulness of God, where no matter what Satan does, he ends up serving God. So Luther will say very flippantly, the devil taught me theology. And he means that in exactly this deeper sense, and he means it as a profound and stinging insult on the proud and arrogant devil, that all he's done by his attacks is driven Luther into the word of God that he might know it more. And so the devil has done nothing but served God's purposes. Okay, so that's, I mean, it's also, Luther also says, he was no, we think of uh, temporal affliction and bodily affliction, um, yeah, temporal affliction chiefly as bodily affliction, I should say, but temporal affliction, um, onfectang or um, tentatio, also takes on spiritual dimension, and probably almost even more frequently spiritual and it's just important to, to realize that as you're going through that, you um, often can't discern between the God, God and the devil because they're both using the law. They're both using God's word. The truths are the same. Um, but you just have to realize that where the devil shows his hand is when he's trying to drive you into self-righteousness or despair. It's typically where he shows his hand. So... 
God will wield the Ten Commandments. The devil will wield the Ten Commandments. God will wield them to drive you to Christ and nothing else. The devil will wield them to drive you away from Christ into self-righteousness or despair. It's about the only time you can start to tell a distinction or difference. Okay, all that to say then that you know, suffering connected with the ascertaining of wisdom can indeed be found in these verses here, even if the connection in these verses here isn't so immediate. Um, it is in broader biblical theology. Okay, so we did meditatio, oratio, and tentatio. Good. All right, into verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, uh, tabuna, discernment, for the gain from her. Again, um, this has to do with, in the, um, the original languages, whether Hebrew or Greek, the noun for wisdom being feminine. And so you're going to make the pronoun feminine. You could translate it it and do no real violence to the text. Uh, but with this translation of her, we again, that was spooky Halloween music. <laughs> but with this uh, translation of her, we're again drawn back into this theology of um, the two women. So if you will just glance back at uh, chapter 216. And recall this line, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. And we have already seen earlier than this, and now again, that wisdom is presented as a her, as a woman. And so you've got these two women, and this slowly emerges as a central theme. And in some respects, the father there's almost a marital sense of the father wants his son to choose and be married to wisdom as opposed to choose and be married to the adulteress. Okay, those things hinted at here. Verse 14, For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. You know, and I think that this is the both and theology. In verse 9, Honor the Lord with your wealth, excuse me, and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. If we were inclined to look at that as temporal, earthly blessing, material blessing, then here we have a both and. We have that and also, in verse 14, the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. So while wisdom can result in temporal blessing, the true benefit of wisdom surpasses even that. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. And I don't think that we have to do any like real heavy sermonic lifting here to understand the point. It should be straightforward. Uh, earthly wealth has its uses. But those uses are in fact limited, and they can't actually penetrate to the deeper things of man. And of course, this is frequently articulated shorthand by, hey, you can't take it with you when you die. But if you meditate on that reality a little deeper, it's like, what good is it doing you even now? So... 
Uh, in fact, we see that in many times uh, extreme amounts of money or wealth are, become a burden to the one who would be saved. Remember Christ's teaching on this point uh, where he's, he's talking about uh, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. And his disciples say, well, who then can be saved? There's a lot of assumptions in that statement on their part. The assumption being that the rich are blessed by God and so that even the most blessed by God can scarcely be saved, then who can be saved? But as the Lord goes on to demonstrate, I mean, wealth in many respects is a hindrance to salvation and a hindrance to true and deeper wisdom. So there's that great statement. I can't remember if it's in Ecclesiastes or if it's in the Apocrypha right this second. But it's essentially this prayer that God would um, not give us so much that we forget him or so little that we curse him. (laughs) It's this beautiful prayer, forgive me just what I need, right? And that I might be satisfied with that. That's really the path of wisdom. Okay, verse 16, long life is in her hand. Temporal blessing, of course, in view, but we can see how playfully that extends to eternal life. So I think, we, I think we look at that like with a bifocal lens and say it's both. And where it isn't temporal, it is indeed eternal. Because you can think of many of the prophets, for example, not least of which John the Baptist and Jesus dying relatively young, even though they are filled with an extraordinary amount of wisdom. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Again, I think you can think temporally there, but it's not often the case. There are examples in the scriptures where that's true. Solomon himself, Joseph, but there are many examples where that's not the case. So I think riches and honor also kind of pertain to that life which is to come and the blessings that will be given those who are wise in that day. All right, her ways in verse 17 harkens back to this recurring theme of the path or ways upon which we walk. Earlier in this address to the sun, you can recall verse 6 talks about the paths being made straight by the Lord and the humility of not being wise in your own eyes. So her ways here in verse 17 are ways of pleasantness. Na'am can also be beauty, which to me is a tantalizing idea. I don't know if I'll be ready to preach on it this Sunday, but I kind of want to this next Sunday because it's the Beatitudes and it's the way of the saints. And this is, um, this is a category that we've completely lost here in the modern West, and that's the importance of beauty. You can, t- <laughs> you can tell we've lost it just by looking out the window at the architecture anywhere you go, and it's ugly and utilitarian. And you can look at modernism and progressivism and the kind of architecture and art produced by these things, and it's hellish. It's just a hellscape. So there is a connection between uh, truth and goodness and beauty, of course. But here, I think, is important to meditate on this a little, that her ways are ways of na'am, which can be beauty or pleasantness, that wisdom carries with it a a peculiar kind of beauty. Primarily, we would define that as an internal 
beauty. We've seen that already in Proverbs. We'll see it again, that the wise woman bedecks herself not with jewels or, da- or you know, um, put upon her body, but with uh, virtues of the heart. And so to pursue beauty and pleasantness that is internal in nature and to seek to walk in the ways and paths of that pleasantness and beauty, that there can be an elegance to life um, if, if we pursue wisdom. I think in some respects, we would even see, say that is like, here would, be a, here would be an example. We can look at some people and say that they've aged gracefully. If we consider that and think about what that means, it means they, they've come to terms with some things. They've accepted some things. There's a kind of humility and wisdom. There's a sense of, yeah, 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 humility and, and proper order and understanding our very minor role in the great scheme of life. And these things are admirable where we see it. In some cases, especially in our culture, we see a, a, a peculiar raging against nature and raging against aging. Uh, we see, uh, have you seen, um, oh gosh, it popped onto one of my, the algorithms on my social media, but m- poor Madonna. Remember her from the 80s? Oh man, she's just up to the same thing, except like here's, the, here's an emblem of one who is not aged Gracefully, She's had plastic surgery after plastic surgery. She's getting no attention, so she's just getting like more and more egregious and flagrant in her uh, immorality. And this is the only way she thinks she can draw attention is by appearing physically, psychologically, spiritually monstrous. It's the antithesis of the way of wisdom, the way of beauty, the way of na'am, pleasantness and walking through life knowing who you are, who God is, and what your role is. So I think that this is a profound way for us to think and begin to think, and how do you want to live, and how do you want your way to be? And yeah, you're modeling that for the people around you, too. So you can take an extreme like Madonna or the other people who they all end up looking like leopards or something. Have you noticed this about their faces? They all end up looking like demons, um, as construed in medieval art, desert-dwelling demons, by the, uh, and they pay for it. So that, I think that that's like, that's one example. What's the other example? And that's the way of the saints, and saints living and saints past, but they present to us a different way of walking, a, a way of Naam of pleasantness and beauty. And again, it's not external. Some of the saints are real hideous <laughs> externally. But they're, but they're not making themselves hideous by raging against nature. They're just receiving what God has given them in this fallen world with a certain gracious acceptance and going on about their business. It's a true humility. Okay, well, I've probably belabored that, but I think it's something I'm particularly fascinated by. All right, her ways are ways of pleasantness or beauty, and all her paths are shalom. Again, peace, but peace, I think, in the sense of wholeness and wholesomeness, which one receives only in right relationship with God. So having a good conscience before God is the essence of shalom, And that, of course, is given to us in Christ and in him alone, uh, no doubt about that. 
All right, over to verse 18, we've got this wonderful line. She is, so again, wisdom is, a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. So the study note's fantastic on this point if you have the Lutheran Study Bible. Um, It says that this is the first of four such references. So we're going to be looking at um, three other references to wisdom in the tree of life. And the study note goes on to say, The tree of life found in Eden was able to impart eternal life to those who ate its fruit. Okay, so that, that is probably exactly the comparison here, that the tree of life in Eden was to sustain eternal life in Adam and Eve and the human race. And the parallel then is that we are sustained by wisdom. No doubt about it, we can reflect here deeply on wisdom as being Christ, the personification of Christ, and so Christ is right at the center. I mean, again, we could spend eternity here just looking at all the different ways the Proverbs works, and we could always return to that theme that wisdom is Christ. Maybe here especially apropos, just in the sense that the tree of life, wisdom, Christ, are all the same reality, the same source by which we have and receive life. I mean, Christ is quite literally with his cross, the tree of life. And that's a fun meditation. The tree of, um, it, especially when you contrast that with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, how it looked beautiful, but it's, and its fruit looked beautiful, but it gave death. And now the tree of the cross, what could be more ugly? And the fruit hanging from it, the body and blood of Jesus, what could be more horrific? And yet it is this very thing that gives life. And so in both cases, God requiring faith over and against sight. What could be more beautiful than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you would eat and yet it brings death? What would be more hideous and more unthinkable than that you would eat from the tree of the cross and receive in your mouth the body and blood of Christ and yet by this very act you receive life? So thus, Christ and his cross being the true tree of life for us as Christians, when we go to the uh, altar to receive that, we're always going to the new Eden. All right, she is a tree of life for those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so we have a beatitude here. And anytime we have a beatitude, we ought to recall our Lord's teaching, the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on His Mount. I'm not going to go into any detail there because that's probably my sermon text for next week. All right, in 19, we've just got some beautiful construction. Okay, so 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. We can certainly see that Christ there, you know, God speaks, let there be, and through his word, the earth is founded, everything in the cosmos. So to see Christ here, absolutely right. It takes us back to Genesis, but also forward to Christ. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and even deeper than that, that this wisdom is written into the earth. I think that's the other thing. This wisdom isn't contrary to the earth. It's contrary to the earth if you're conceiving of the earth as the fallen reality of man. But if you're thinking about nature itself, creation proper, that which has been tainted and corrupted, but that which in and of itself is still good, the wisdom of God, the word of God, is written all the way through it. 
And that is uh, of utmost importance because then we can see in light of the scriptures, we can see then what many church fathers call the second book, that is nature and its revelation of God. We can perceive it more accurately and more rightly. So you can see Christ proclaimed through the cosmos and the various truths of God, his wisdom, his justice, his right ordering. You can see these things proclaimed through the creation, which then shows us that there's something much deeper going on in the Bible than, than mere metaphor and mere analogy. Now, I'm not denying that there, is, that there are mere metaphors and mere analogies in the scriptures. Fine, I, no problem. And we, can, we know them when we see them. But there is a deeper sense in which God is calling things out of nature that he, before the foundation of the world, wrote into nature precisely because they reflect some deeper, profounder spiritual truth that has been revealed to us in the scriptures. So that if we read nature and the natural revelation in light of the specific revelation of scriptures, the world will begin to be transformed before our eyes and we'll begin to perceive things we never perceived before. And that is the word or wisdom written, Christ himself, written through the cosmos. It's not by accident and it's not exploitative, nor is it mere metaphor or analogy. I hope you can see my point there. Okay, so the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The whole thing is established by wisdom and is penetrated through by wisdom. By under, and this, by the way, is like why when pagans look at nature, they're without excuse because they're denying the God who made it. And it's self-evident that he made it. Only the fool can say in his heart, there is no God. So the Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So you have the heavens and the earth, which is the first line of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, By his knowledge, the deeps broke open. Now, the deeps in Genesis 1 are um, the spirits hovering over the deeps. So that's probably what's referred to here by the deeps broke open. Creation uttered forth from water and word. Boy, is that almost baptismal? Yep. (laughs) why the new creation comes through baptism, water and spirit. And um, here the knowledge, by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. So the clouds pouring out water, Isaiah uses that, of course, as a metaphor for the gospel and God's grace. And we can think of that as the clouds drop down their dew, giving life to the fields, giving earthly life. And that's the perfect way of thinking of Uh, heavenly life coming down from God. Uh, You see a connection by wisdom. The Lord founded the earth. And then that last clause, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Then you can see the heavens established and the deeps broke open. Um, You can see connections there. A little bit of a A ABBA pattern. And then broadening out back to 18, you can see uh, God's provision of food via the tree of life. And then in 19 through 20, you can see water. So water and food, which of course factor, I mean, immensely in God's plan about bringing the new creation through the waters of baptism and sustaining us through the food of the Holy Sacrament, the new tree of life from which humanity eats and lives. So already hinted at and foreshadowed here is the new creation the new water and spirit through which the new creation is born, baptism, 
and the new tree of life, which is the cross, the body and blood of Christ uh, for the life of the world. So already hinted at here are those realities that God will bring to bear. All right, that brings us to an end then to this section, which is the third address to a son. Uh, Maybe I'll take your questions or anything that stands out next week, and we'll hit the fourth address to a son, which begins with verse 21 and leads through the end of the chapter. The Lord be with you.